Father, thank you that there is one who is worthy. Thank you that there is one who is perfect and holy. There is one who lives the life we couldn't to die the death we should and deserve. And it is he we praise and worship this morning, Jesus, your son. May now how we listen to him in his word demonstrate that he is worthy. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love, hands and feet to obey, knees to bow before him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us. It is, it is hard for me to preach after that song. What a powerful song. Jesus Christ is worthy. I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. But if you don't, we have one for you. You'll find one in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. And if you want to find your page, it's page 1006. That's Mark chapter 10 this morning. And as you're finding your place, I like to do this uh, frequently on Sunday mornings. But um, I want to ask a question this morning as we begin how many of you love stories or books or movies with a happy ending? Raise your hands. All right, so that's a good portion of you. Um, how many of you like stories or books or movies with a sad ending? Okay, I just, uh, can you keep those hands up? I need to pray for you. All right, so um, um, I think God has built within us the desire, by the way, let me just say this, we have children in our own family who love sad endings. I mean, the Little House on the Prairie episodes, they love when the schoolhouse burns down. They love the blizzard where people die. And, and I just, I don't get that. I think God has built within us a desire to love redemptive stories where, where there's a good ending. I mean, isn't that the, the, the ending of the Bible? Isn't it, isn't it a good ending? And so now I'll have to apologize to some of my kids later. But um, as we've made our way through Mark's gospel, we've seen story after story after story, scene after scene after scene, just good endings. I mean, happy endings, redemptive endings, the four men who bring their paralyzed buddy to Jesus by cutting a hole in the roof of the room where Jesus is teaching and they let their friend down through that roof in front of Jesus and Jesus heals that man. He comes into that room, dropped down in front of Jesus, a paralytic. He leaves with new feet and new legs, walking away. What an ending. And then Jesus with his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and a storm rolls up. The winds and the waves are filling, actually not the winds are filling the boat, but the waves are filling the boat. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, why are you sleeping in the boat during the storm? And they awaken him and they say, Master, we are perishing here. 
And Jesus stands in the boat, raises his hands and says, peace, be still. Happy ending. There's another time Jesus comes walking to the disciples on the water in the midst of another storm. And when he hops into their boat, the Bible says that they're immediately at the other side. They reach their destination. Happy ending. This is one of the few stories in Mark's gospel. Life on purpose. That's a sad ending. It's a powerful and poignant story that's intended to cause us and call us to look within the depths of our own hearts. So let's read that story. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, as we continue working our way through Mark's gospel, paragraph by paragraph, here's what we read. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, intrinsically good, inherently good, except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the Word of our God. There are things that I struggle with in life, and one of those things is fear. I've told you before, this will come as no surprise to those of you who've been around here for a while, but one of my great fears is heights. I hate heights. I have dreams about falling, not falling down, I'm not that old yet, but falling off. Falling off a roof, falling off a building, falling off a cliff, and in my dreams, I awaken just before I go kersplat on the ground below. By the way, I'm thankful I wake up. But there are other things I fear, and some of those things are actually a detriment to my walk with Jesus. I fear people. Not a shake-in-my-boots kind of fear, but a fear that says, I want you to affirm me and accept me. That's why I bought my first pair of Levi's 501 button-fly jeans when I was 14 years old with my own money. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be one of the cool kids in the in crowd. But there's something else I fear. And it's probably my greatest fear. And that is that some of the kids that God has given to Joanna and me and some of the people in the churches I've pastored won't be in heaven. People who've sat where you are sitting this morning, moral people, ethical people, 
good people, church people, who will miss heaven, not because of their sinfulness, but because of their goodness. People who look the part because they say the right things and they pray the right way and they give the right offering. This scene in Mark chapter 10 shows us that good people don't go to heaven because good people can't go to heaven. It's what Jesus has already said back in Mark chapter 2 verse 17. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so I need to ask you right up front here, to which group do you belong? The sinners who need Jesus or the righteous who don't? Because the big idea of this text in Mark 10 is that eternal life is a gift that cannot be earned by our goodness. It can only be received in our sinfulness. Eternal life is a gift. It's grace. And grace works only on sinful people and never on righteous people. Now I know that there are a lot of you in this room this morning who get that. You believe that. You're all in on that. And maybe you're thinking, well, obviously this sermon isn't about me. It isn't for me because I'm trusting entirely in Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone is worthy. To save me. To give me eternal life. If you say that, if you believe that, if that's you, that is awesome. But can I press you a bit on that? Because it isn't just non-believers in Jesus who struggle with self-righteousness. Believers in Jesus do too. Just take a peek across the page at verses 35 to 45 of Mark chapter 10 where two of Jesus' own disciples, two brothers named James and John, they come to Jesus and they tell him that they deserve positions of prominence in God's kingdom. They've earned it. These are two guys who get grace These are two guys who've witnessed the grace in Jesus and of Jesus as they followed Jesus. So please don't think that this is a text just for non-Christians. It's for all of us. Eternal life is a gift that we cannot contribute to either before our salvation or after our salvation. And so, listen, we, we never outgrow or outlive or move past our need for grace. Or to grow in our understanding of grace. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. that by, But by the grace of God I am what I am. That's the point of this scene in Mark chapter 10. Which opens with a good guy asking a great question. So Jesus and his disciples, they're packing up their stuff. They're heading out. We don't know where they're going, but we do know where they've been. Jesus has been teaching those crowds that back in verse 1 were coming to him. And they just, just like wave after wave of the crowds, just they keep coming. And he's been teaching those crowds. And now parents have been bringing their children to him for him to bless them. And then the disciples try to put the kibosh on those parents and their kids. Don't interrupt Jesus. He's teaching on some really significant stuff. And when the disciples try to put the kibosh on the parents and kids, Jesus puts the kibosh on the disciples. And he says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. 
For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So guys, here's what you need to understand about children. Here's what you need to be watching with those children rather than attempting to shut down those children. Guys, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like one of these little children shall not enter it. Jesus is saying that we cannot enter God's kingdom apart from a total and complete dependence, childlike dependence on Him. You've got to come entirely empty-handed like a child, trusting in Him. And following then, hard on the heels of that statement, a man suddenly runs up to Jesus through the crowd and kneels before Jesus asking, Good teacher, what must I I do to inherit eternal life. We don't know if this guy has heard what Jesus has just said, but we do know that this is a great question to ask. I mean, think about it. The average person sitting in Starbucks, sipping on their blonde vanilla latte, is not asking this question. They aren't on their iPhone Googling How can I have eternal life? They're thinking about how their property taxes have increased 15% over the last year. And how their 401k has decreased by 15% over the last year. Or that the coffee at Starbucks isn't as good as it was five years ago. But not this guy. This guy is concerned about eternal life. And that's especially significant when we learn that this guy isn't just some random guy off the street. Matthew tells us that he's a young guy, but he's got some major street cred because Luke 18 tells us that he's a ruler. Not a political ruler, but a religious ruler. He's a part of the Sanhedrin, that elite Jewish religious council. The same religious council that's labeled Jesus an outlaw rabbi. And yet, this young religious ruler doesn't just run up to Jesus. He falls at the feet of Jesus. It's a picture of submission. It's a picture of giving honor to Jesus. It's a picture of worshiping Jesus. And at this moment, it all looks so good. Here's a guy that wants the right thing. He's doing the right thing. He's asking the right thing. But Jesus is about to tell him that he's missing the one thing. Jesus gives a masterful response to this young man. It begins with Jesus asking, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, For those of us sitting in this room this morning, that may seem like a rather obvious statement, and it probably is a rather obvious statement to this young man, but it's a masterful statement from Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, sir, do you really get what you've just said to me? Because the religious council to which you belong says that I'm a blasphemer, that I am not God even though I claim to be God. But when you refer to me as good teacher, you're actually referring to me as God. Because as we both know, only God is inherently and intrinsically good. 
But this man's statement does, doesn't just say something about Jesus. This man's own statement says something about him. Because with the words of his own mouth, he has acknowledged that he isn't intrinsically or inherently good. Because he isn't God. Now, that doesn't mean this guy can't do good things. He can, and he has, and Jesus knows that when he says, you know what you must do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And the big one for my kids, honor your father and mother. And right here, we may be thinking, whoa, Jesus, hang on a minute. Um... That's not what we expected you to say. We didn't expect you to talk about the Ten Commandments. We expected you to tell this man to repent and to believe the gospel. We expected you to say that eternal life is all about what God has done for us and not what we have done for him. I mean, Jesus, where's the grace here? Because it sure sounds like like you're saying that if we keep the Ten Commandments, that we'll be good with God And that he'll be good with us and will earn eternal life. But listen carefully, that is not what Jesus is saying. Because the Ten Commandments are not a checklist that reveals our goodness. The Ten Commandments are a mirror that exposes our sinfulness. That's why Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says that God's law is not given to justify us, to save us. It's given to expose and reveal our sin to us. It's what we've already read this morning from Titus chapter 3 in our scripture reading. We are saved from our sins, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. We cannot earn eternal life. We cannot be good enough or do good enough or be sincere enough. So Jesus is not saying that obedience to God's laws can earn us a place in heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he's speaking in terms that this man understands. Jesus is stepping onto this religious ruler's turf. This man is an expert in the ten, on the Ten Commandments. He knows them inside and out. He probably has them hanging on his refrigerator with check marks beside each commandment that he's kept each day. He's all good. He's got this. And so he says to Jesus, nailed it, Jesus. You probably don't know this about me. But when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I get an A+. I'm good. I've obeyed the commandments from the time I was a kid. Every single one, every single time. Let's just hit the pause button here for a moment. And let's just acknowledge that this guy has some guts, right? I mean, he's got some guts. He doesn't say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, that's a really good question. Give me some time to really consider this and think about this, and, and I'll get back with you. Not this guy. This guy says it loud and proud for everyone to hear. I'm not just good, Jesus. I'm perfect. You believe him? Come on. You believe him? <laughs> 
You can talk back to me. Do you believe him? But think about it. Isn't there still a crowd around when all this goes down? And nobody in that crowd is disagreeing with this guy. Nobody's like, yo, Joe, come on, man. I grew up next door to you. Remember when you were 14 years old and your mom told you to take out the trash and you sassed her? You remember that? Remember the time that Billy made fun of your ears in eighth grade and you popped him in the nose? You remember that? Or, or, or just yesterday, I saw the way you looked at that pretty woman walking by. You couldn't take your eyes off her. Nobody says that. Nobody offers up evidence that this guy isn't a good guy. Not even Jesus. He doesn't say, come on, man, get real. Who do you think you are? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, notice verse 21. Notice that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. After our midweek at Bethel gathering on Wednesday night, I was chatting with someone about this very part of the scene because the way that Mark connects the words looked and are looking and loved intrigued me. And I didn't know why. I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I couldn't let it go. And so as I sat at my desk on Thursday morning, I asked myself, why does Mark want us to know that Jesus is looking at him? Why doesn't Mark just tell us that Jesus loves him? And so I checked the Greek. And the Greek word here for to look is a prolonged form of the word. It literally means to behold or to gaze as if to take in an entire scene or as we would say today, to stare down. Jesus is staring down this man. He is gazing into his soul, not to condemn him, but to love him. This guy who's claiming to be the poster boy of perfection, and Jesus locks his eyes on him to love him. Jesus' heart doesn't just go out to this man. Jesus' heart breaks for this man. And that's saying something because the I'm always right and never wrong kind of people are the hardest kind of people to love. I've sat with couples in marriage counseling where one of the spouses in that room has actually made this claim. They aren't wrong. Ever. Everybody else is. And from across my desk, I am staring at that person. I am staring them down. But I just have to acknowledge to you that I'm not, I, I, I'm not good at this right here. Because I'm not staring them down in love most of the time. I'm staring them down in frustration and exasperation. But maybe that's you too. Maybe for you, it's somebody at work or someone in your neighborhood. Or maybe it's one of your children or young people. Maybe it's a parent. And they're a lot like this guy 
They're never wrong, and they aren't afraid to admit it. Can we be like the Jesus we claim to follow? And can we look on them in love in that moment? God is working with me on that. He's teaching me that. I struggle with that, but Jesus doesn't. And so Jesus, loving this man, says to this man, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And with those words, Jesus hits the bullseye of this man's heart. Now, let me be clear here. Jesus is not saying that the roadway to heaven is paved with $100 bills that you give to the poor. He's saying that the road to heaven is paved with a faith that says, I'm not trusting in anything I've accomplished or anything I've accumulated. I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what Jesus is calling this man to do. He says he's perfectly obeyed six of the Ten Commandments, and now Jesus is going to point to the first commandment, the big commandment, the you shall have no other gods before me commandment. That's the one that exposes this man's heart. That's the one that exposes this man's sin. It's his wealth. It's his stocks and his bonds and his ETFs. This isn't just the stuff he loves. It's the stuff he worships. This is the stuff that holds the key to this man's heart. He's a self-made man. And the problem with self-made men is that they tend to worship their maker. And so the good guy isn't good enough to sell all that he has and give to the poor because in that society, in that day, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. Wealth was a billboard that proclaimed to the world how much God liked you, that he was on your team, and he was good with you. And so giving up your wealth would mean giving up the public prestige that accompanied that wealth. It would be a game changer for this man because it would be a status changer for this man. And that's why we read in verse 22 that Jesus' words cut deep within this man. Because this man has great possessions. But really, the many possessions aren't the problem. It isn't a sin for you to have stuff. It's a sin for stuff to have you. That's the issue here. That's the first commandment thing. That's the you shall have no other gods before me thing. Jesus is asking this man to smash his idol and trust in Jesus alone. But Jesus, you have no idea how hard I've worked for my stuff. Don't you see all the blood and sweat and tears I've invested in all my stuff? You're asking too much of me. It's too hard for me. I would be left empty-handed with nothing but you.
And that's the point. This religious ruler must let his status and his stuff slip through his fingers and come to Jesus empty-handed. Helpless, needy, dependent upon Jesus for eternal life. And this man gets that. Which is why he's disheartened and disillusioned and distraught. And so rather than come to Jesus like a child, leaving his status and his stuff behind, he leaves Jesus behind. Turning his back on the only one who can give him eternal life. It's one of the most gut-wrenching scenes in the entire Bible It's a real-world picture of what Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? There's only one thing this man doesn't have. But that one thing is the only thing when it comes to eternal life. He lacks Jesus. And Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Jesus is the only reason anyone has eternal life. And that truth demands a response from every person in this room this morning. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You will either come to Jesus... Or you'll turn away from Jesus. And I'm not just talking to those who don't claim to follow Jesus. I'm talking to you who do. Because in every church I've been a part of, there have been long-time church members who have sat week after week where you are sitting, who have been baptized like many of you have been baptized, who are serving in the church like many of you are serving, who have come to the realization after years that they weren't really trusting in Jesus alone and what He did for them. They were trusting in something that they had done for Him. So please, for the sake of your eternal soul, please listen. You don't have eternal life because of anything you've done. I don't have eternal life because of anything I've done. You see, saving faith is not faith in your faith. Saving faith is not faith in an expression of your faith. It's not because you've prayed a prayer or raised a hand or walked an aisle. It isn't because you have a date written on the inside flyleaf of your Bible. It isn't because you've been baptized. Young people, it isn't because mom tells you that when you were five years old, you asked Jesus into your heart. Eternal life is never about anything that we've done for Jesus. It is always and only about what He has done for us. Even the faith to believe in Jesus does not originate within us. It's a gift from Him. It's one of the reasons I'm always quoting to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, that grace, that salvation, all of it, none of it is of yourselves. 
It's none of your own doing. It is the gift of God, even the faith to believe. It's not a result of works, lest any of us should boast. So here's the question. When, like this man in Mark chapter 10, when you are standing before God Himself and He asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will be your response? There's only one correct answer. Only one. And it's not that you've been enough or done enough or are sincere enough. It's that you have come to Jesus like a child. Empty-handed, desperately dependent upon Him and Him alone. That's saving faith. That's eternal life. Any other answer, every other answer is the wrong answer. It's always and only Jesus is He your answer. Because He says this in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus your answer? If he's not your only answer this morning, I plead with you, don't let anything stand in the way of you coming to Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus today. We don't know if this man ever had another conversation with Jesus. We don't know that he ever had another opportunity to come to Jesus. We do know that the Jewish religious council of which he's a part played a massive part in killing Jesus. So please, please, please don't be like This man, today is your opportunity. It may never come again. So come to Jesus and he will give you eternal life. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You say, why why should I do that? Because he came to us. He came for us to live the perfect life that we couldn't and to die the death we should so that we wouldn't have to. But for that to happen, He as the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God must die on our behalf and in our place. He must die as though He Himself had committed every one of our sins. He Himself must die as if He were trusting in His own goodness to win the Father's favor and entrance into heaven. He must die in our place. Jesus comes to us. He comes for us. And then He opens His arms to us on the cross and says, Come to Me. Empty-handed, desperately dependent on me and me alone. Will you come to Jesus? And then for believers in Jesus, I want to tweak the question just a bit 
to make one final application. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're sure about that, genuinely trusting in Him alone and what He has done and in nothing you've done, then this is your takeaway. Is there anything that you know Jesus wants you to leave behind in following Him? You're already following Him, but there's something he, he, you know He wants you to leave behind, to let slip through your fingers, to stop clinging to. But you haven't done that yet. You see shadows of yourself in this rich young ruler. You hear echoes of yourself saying, I hear you, Jesus, but no thank you, not right now. You're asking too much of me. It's too hard for me. There's too much ahead for me. Maybe it's a habit that you don't want to quit or a relationship that you don't want to give up or money that you want to keep or plans that you don't want to surrender. That's what it was for me when I was a teenager. I wanted Jesus to have a role in my life, but I didn't really want him in control of my life. I was afraid he would take me somewhere I didn't want to go, like Africa. I hate spiders and snakes. I was afraid he'd turn me into somebody I didn't want to be. I hated being in front of people and speaking. I was afraid he would make me do what I didn't want to do. I wanted to be a cop and carry a pistol, not a pastor who carries a Bible. But you know what I discovered when between my junior and senior years of high school, I finally surrendered my future to Jesus? I discovered that there's no greater joy than following Jesus wherever he leads and being whoever he's called me to be and doing what he's called me to do. I discovered that the life of surrender is actually a part of the eternal life he's given me. You see, eternal life isn't something I have to die to get. Eternal life is something I have right now in him. And there's no life like it because there's no life without him. So I plead with you, do not be like this man. Don't walk away disillusioned and distraught because you are clinging to something that's keeping you from fully following Jesus. Smash that idol. And when you do, Psalm 16 verse 11 will be true for you. Lord, you make known to me the path of life. Life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a gift. The gift that cannot be earned. The gift that by grace alone, through faith alone, you receive when you cling to Jesus alone. And that's a happy ending. Because that's eternal life. Amen. Father, may you take these words from your word and plant them deep within the recesses and the dark corners and the shut-off rooms of our hearts. May your light shine there. And may those in this room 
who realize this morning that they've never truly, truly trusted in Jesus and in him alone. May this be the day of salvation for them. May they cry out to you in faith, coming empty-handed and desperately dependent upon Jesus and him alone. And for those who are followers of Jesus, let us not pretend that we don't see shadows of ourselves in this wealthy young man. Work in our hearts. Give us grace to let those things slip through our fingers that are hindering our walk with you. May we surrender fully. In Jesus' name, amen.